You're listening to the Well Women Podcast. I'm your host, Gemma Lee, women's cycle health educator. Together, we're normalizing periods, cracking open real body talk, and femme rising the future. I'm here to remind you that your body is amazing. You can achieve balance, and body confidence all begins with your menstrual cycle. Get ready, beautiful. You're about to learn how to confidently reconnect with your body and discover your unique flow. Today on the show, I'm joined by Honey Bashan, and Honey is an absolutely remarkable lady that I completely froth off over in this episode. This episode is all about Ayurveda and yogic approach to the menstrual cycle. Yeah, we're talking all about the ancient wisdom and philosophies of Ayurveda and living to a yogic lifestyle. We discuss how yoga and Ayurveda are connected. We tap into how to start a yogic lifestyle journey for yourself, what the Ayurvedic doshas are, how to unidentify with your doshas and why that's even important, but how we are actually all doshas at the same time. Ayurvedic's approach to contraception. We talk about traditional sexual practices according to Ayurveda and three things you need to do to connect to your cyclical yogic lifestyle. On today's show, we are chatting all about Ayurveda and the yogic approach to the menstrual cycle. I'm joined by the beautiful Honey Bashan and we really delve into the philosophy of ancient Ayurveda and the yogic lifestyle and way of living. I reached out to Honey after finding her on Instagram because she has so much beautiful wisdom around this area. It's been more than two thirds of her life in development and I just completely froth off everything she says in this episode. We've just wrapped up and I can't wait for you to wrap your ears around it because Honey's Dharma, meaning her purpose, is to educate women to connect more deeply to their selves and through the connection to facilitate healing the feminine and the treatment of our nature. How beautiful. She's been a yoga practitioner for more than two thirds of her life and through this, she's developed the awareness to dive deeper into ancient wisdom her practice dwells within. Honey guides women to more embodiment, radiance, and fully alive. Yes, sounds great, right? So in this episode, we talk about how is yoga and Ayurveda connected. We delve into what is the yogic lifestyle and how you could start living a yogic lifestyle. The differences between what you might think is a yogic lifestyle and what is an ancient philosophy or philosophical yogic lifestyle. We talk about the Ayurvedic doshas, why we need to learn how to unidentify with our doshas and how we are actually all doshas too. We touch on devotional food practices, emotional eating and a bunch of stuff around food and how you can have a devotional food practice for yourself. And then we talk about the menstrual cycle in Ayurveda. We chat on contraception and Ayurvedic's approach to contraception, traditional sexual practices according to Ayurveda, and then three things you can do to connect with your cyclical yogic lifestyle. If you've never taken this journey before and you think you really want to, especially after listening to this episode, you can definitely do so with these three great tips that Honey gives. Now, if you want to tune in and connect with Honey and see who she is while we're chatting, head over to Instagram and look up seed underscore of underscore self, seed of self. You'll find Honey Bashan there. But let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by my Vedic Woman's Masterclass. Do you like Ayurveda? Interested in the Ayurvedic way and how to live as an Ayurvedic woman or bring in ancestral traditions? This masterclass was designed to bliss your heart out, activate your body and awaken ancestral traditions. Throughout this two-hour live masterclass, you'll learn the fundamentals of Ayurveda through doshas, Ayurvedic elements and the qualities to bring your body back into harmony. These teachings also weave in women's health awareness through hormones, menstrual cycle, emotions and Ayurvedic psychology. Download the PDF worksheets that go with this masterclass and work through them with me as I guide you through the daily Ayurvedic rhythm and how you can apply this in the modern Western world, how to balance imbalances in your doshas, the Ayurvedic food elements that support women's health, and how you can connect with the fundamentals of each of your doshas, vata, pitta, and kapha. To learn more about this masterclass, head to Wellsome dot com forward slash shop that's w-e-l-l-s-o-m-e dot com forward slash shop and use the code cycle love to save 20% off honey welcome to the show thank you beautiful I feel really blessed we we're just chatting before we hit record um, about the conversations we're going to have today and I'm feeling really blessed that you're here um, 
you really encompass like everything I love. Um, so before we jump into it, tell us what day of your cycle you're on today and how are you feeling in this moment? How are you checking in? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I'm on about day four. Um, and that's cool because I was bleeding on the full moon for the last probably 10 months or 11 months. And I've just moved into state. And when we move, you know, our cycle sometimes disappears or if we move time zones and things like that. And so it did disappear for a few weeks and now it's re-synced with the new moon, which is, you know, this morning. So that's amazing. And I, today I feel, you know, like a little bit cooped up. We've had three days of extreme weather and being inside and my dog's very agitated and I'm looking forward to getting out, but I've also got a really busy couple of days where I'll be sitting in front of the computer. So there's a little bit of a um, grating sensation occurring. Mm, I love that. I'm on day five today, so I'm definitely on those feels for you. Um, thank you for sharing. So tell us, who is Honey Bashan and how did you get into this work that you do and get known as this beautiful, unveiling self-educator and teacher? Mm. Um, that's a long story. <laughs> so I think part a good place to start or just to touch on is that I grew up in the country and I've been really connected to nature for my whole life. I lived in the city for 15 years or so, uh, you know, moved to go to uni and have only just left. But that's probably quite important. But the way that I got into this work is I started practicing yoga at about age, I can't remember if it was 11 or 12. Wow. I started a traditional hatha practice at that age and loved it so much. Like I even got my teacher to come and like take a PE class at my <laughs> high school, you know. Um, so really I was very, very deep into it. And then she went on maternity leave and then it kind of waned and there wasn't anyone else. And cause this was, you know, 45 minutes drive away from my house. So I didn't practice for a few years and then once I moved to Melbourne, I picked up my practice again and went through all of the pretty much every single iteration, every single kind of yoga that I could go through. I probably practiced everything and then really landed in a deep, deep practice and learning about Ayurveda probably when I was like 25, maybe 24. And then started to more deeply embody that and that kind of came out in the way that I ate um, the way that I gardened and grew food and plants and herbs my relationships you know becoming mostly sober and then over time it was that I actually started with my Reiki practitioner training and then realized that that was really a thing and that people were very interested in working with me in that way. And then it slowly built and built. And then I got a scholarship to do a teacher training for yoga and I had to leave a full-time job in order to do that. And I've pretty much just been working full-time for myself in this changing and morphing iteration for the last five or so years, I think. Yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. I love that you started yoga at such a young age. I'm a bit envious of that. I definitely, my yoga career, career, <laughs> I'm not a yoga teacher. I just practice. Um, it's definitely started much later than that. How does a, an 11 year old, and I'm guessing that was in the nineties. Yeah. How does an 11 year old in the nineties get into yoga? Um, uh, it was like, it was trendy. It was like Madonna was doing it and it was like this weird trendy spiritual thing, but it was also exercise and, you know, probably had quite a few body image things and wanted to exercise, but wasn't really a sporty person. So found this woman doing it at a, like a town hall, you know, at the closest bigger suburb. So just ended up going there and doing that a few times a week, dragged a friend along. Yeah. That's so beautiful. What a, what a, a really authentic beginning to your yoga journey. 
Yeah, and she was incredibly traditional. So what she did was quite strange and I've only in the last three or three years or so met other teachers who were teaching a proper tantric hatha yoga and hatha yoga is tantric by definition um, where they've done those strange practices because no one else kind of did in those interim years and now I just know that it was very traditional like a lot of stuff with tongue and eyes um, a lot of more subtle inner body movements and subtle body practices I love that, that that type of, I've never thought about it in that way. I feel that my teacher teaches very aligned with that, like the placement of your tongue and your inner guidance and your inner, in your inner eye. And all of that just makes you so much more aware of your body and connected on like a deeper level. Um, but I'd love to hear from you about how yoga and Ayurveda are actually connected because you mentioned that you started with yoga and then you went to Ayurveda and those listening know that I'm an Ayurvedic coach and educator too and I love everything about Ayurveda but a lot of people think that yoga and Ayurveda are quite separate but how are they connected? Mm. So that's also a long story so we'll go for it. Um, Historically Ayurveda is older historically as a um, solidified structured formalized practice yoga came later the concept of yoga is the same age slightly older than ayurveda but as a formalized practice ayurveda is actually older and uh from my perspective you know i was always taught that they were sister sciences like the two sides of the same coin that they balance upon one another and they rely on one another to flourish and to practice properly but since learning about the history that's kind of not completely true because there was a time difference there Mm. and however I think that concepts of yoga would have definitely incorporated Ayurveda from the beginning and the notion is that Ayurveda teaches us how to live well and yoga teaches us how to die gracefully you know especially if we're doing a traditional yoga which would be a a tantric yoga and that's you know the whole point of tantra is to die before you die so that you can live vibrantly and Mm. attachment in this life so it's also very interesting from a like a technical perspective because teachers talk a lot about prana in yoga classes the movement of you know prana is housing the mind uh, and it can act like wind (laughs) and if there isn't established other essences and energies in the body that are healthy then prana can't leave the mind can't move throughout the body so that just creates anxiety and can make you feel quite bad in your body. So we use Ayurveda to establish and grow and build those essences. And then we can use yoga to actually articulate them. Oh, that's such a great definition. I've always felt, even though they come from the same branch or the same tree, I guess that they come from the same tree, but they're different branches. Um, Your explanation is so beautiful in the way that you kind of like, share that you know yeah they are kind of sister sciences but they're kind of not really (laughs) and you can't do yoga without Ayurveda yeah I love that and I think let's actually talk about yoga in our current age because I know that you might have a, a passion point for this is that I feel that yoga there's the yogis who go to yoga because it's fashionable and you can wear good, you can wear good tights and you can practice. And it drives me insane going to a yoga studio where you walk in, everyone's like chit chattering in the room and you're trying to center yourself before, before the class starts, but everyone's like on their phones and everything. Whereas where I practice, there's no phones in the room. There's no water in the room. It's very traditional. And I like that aspect where you're coming home to your body every class What's your spin on yoga today, Um, maybe being a yoga teacher today and how yoga, the different types of yoga, I feel like there's two different categories. Mm, I think there's probably many different categories. I think there's a lot going on, like many different approaches, um, those two being two of them. 
uh, I could say a lot about this. And my first response would be to quote one of my teachers, Yoga Rupa, in saying that yoga without philosophy is aerobics. Mm. If you do yoga without philosophy, you're not doing yoga. Okay. Yoga is not asana. Yoga is a state of being. Asana is a vehicle to which we board in order to get to that state. Okay. Um, Traditionally, there was only one asana and that was lotus pose or just a cross-legged seat. And that means yoga is only meditation. So if you're a yoga teacher or you're a yoga student and you don't have a formalized, distinct um, meditation practice, you're not practicing yoga either. There's also, as you would know, many ethics, you know, internal, external ethics of ways of living as a yogi. And there are not, you know, this, this saddens me and I've only really learned this completely and had to sit into it in the last six months because I've been working with a mentor who works with a lot of yoga teachers all over the world. And the embodiment of yogic lifestyle and yogic ethics is not happening. And, you know, we see that, we see that. Um, there's a lot of yoga teacher, business coaches, you know, people wanting to train yoga teachers to have a good business at the moment and they're openly not living a yogic lifestyle and it's just it's really foul it's really revolting um it's really inauthentic and toxic dishonest uh but some of them i think haven't spent the time to even know that there are those frameworks they just think that they're an aerobics teacher and they are you know um but you can you can get there and there are some good teachers out there and you know you can find the needle in the haystack you just have to really listen to your intuition and and pick up on the authenticity that's happening Mm, it's so true all of that Mm. And I mean, the other thing that's been coming up a lot, which I really model in my business as much as I can, is that to practice yoga is to live a unified consciousness. So if if you're a yoga practitioner, a yoga teacher, and you don't lobby about the environment, and you don't talk about human rights and racism, and you, you know, take drugs, and you drink alcohol, and you you know, eat meat according, you know, if you're not supposed to or you don't need to according to your doshic constitution, then you're not really practising yoga. Oh, yoga is life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah where I live in, on the planet, yeah. very, um, it's, there's a very heavy yogic community which is not the ultimate yogic lifestyle. It's it's really yoga without philosophy and there are some pockets where there's a lot of philosophy like the studio that I I study at and practice at and I have for over 10 years very traditional and I actually go for the philosophy Mm. which guides my my like aerobics or my asana Mm. Mm -hmm. and I feel so liberated just by being in the presence of good philosophy yeah. And all of those teachers have been teaching for more than 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I know I'm getting like their practice committed and they have that spiritual practice for a long time. And it took me a long time to be able to discover that, hang on, yoga is so much more than just on the mat. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you spoke about a yogic lifestyle. What is a yogic lifestyle? Because mm. you know, there's going to be people listening to this being like, these girls are crazy. What is a yogic lifestyle? Yeah, so I won't remember them all off by heart. Probably could if you if you really push me. But, you know, to live according to the yamas and yamas, which are these internal and external ethics. So ways of treating yourself and others, ways of thinking and ways of being. And, you know, they're things like brahmacharya moderation to sutra cleanliness all the way through to... Um, Parigraha, non-grasping, you know, and, yeah, concentration and having certain focal points and um, there's many of them. Surrender too is a big one. So we need to embody this 
constantly. And when we don't, we start to feel that, you know, that gratingness. I actually have them in front of me, surprisingly. Just that was totally coincidence. And I'm just looking over them. And it's interesting because a lot of the yamas and niyamas are very much about just being a good human. Yeah. 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 Ultimately, it comes back to just being a good human. A lot of people, and I ask you that question, honey, because a lot of people think the yogic lifestyle is about being a good yoga practitioner. Mm, mm. But the yogic lifestyle is so much more. It's who you are off the mat. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And they cover things like patience and nonviolence, telling the truth, being able to stay humble and study yourself, you know, not being greedy, staying consciously connected. Like I love the one like um, don't steal. Yeah. yeah. Don't steal people's energy. Don't steal, people, steal people's time. things. Yeah. Don't get time. You know, all of that. And just be a good human. Um, if someone's listening to this and they're like, oh, I'd like to maybe begin a deeper spiritual practice or start one from scratch because they've not had one and they want to adapt a bit of a yogic lifestyle, what are some ways they could start that? Yeah, well, my cool membership is a great way to start that. You know, it's a women's online spiritual community that includes uh, yoga practice, meditation, workshops on Ayurveda and yogic lifestyle, as well as community connection and reading resources together, all this kind of stuff. Otherwise, you know, just getting a book on the yamas and niyamas and starting to learn about it. I think something that's really missing in yoga practitioners and teachers is a deeper understanding of the philosophy and an understanding of which philosophy you prescribe to and how you actually thread that through your practice mm. uh, and which fool you ascribe to because it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're throwing Buddha in the room and it's like, hang on, do we know the do we know the link? Do we actually know the link? And do we know what it references? Because it's quite it's connected, but it's quite disconnected. And what philosophy are you trying to teach? But I think a lot of the time no one has made a choice. Oh, that's really good. That's really yeah. good. And it's interesting because I feel too that a lot of us don't realize how important this work is and how not just belief shifting but like on a such a deep subconscious and conscious level how moving this work is you know having been a practitioner myself for a, a number of years over a decade even I recognize that sometimes I need to read a scripture or hear a particular phrase multiple times until I sit with it and I'm like I finally get what he means like with my yoga teacher Mark sometimes I'm like you've been saying that in class for five years and I just realized what it means today and that's part of the you know being really connected with the source and connected with the teachings um you mentioned earlier about doshas honey um what are the doshas like there's other episodes on the podcast about like the core doshas, but what are the doshas and what's your spin on why we shouldn't identify mm. ourselves with a specific dosha? Cause this is a really passionate point for me. So I'd love for you to share on it. Yeah. Beautiful. I'd love to just, there's one little thing I wanted to chuck in there about Bad, yoga please. before. Mm. And that's that when you learn about real yoga, the only aim of yoga is to increase sattva, harmony, harmony and alignment with nature. So if you're going to a yoga class or your yoga teacher is, you know, toxic in this way or the space is toxic, that's not going to be increasing sattva. So you're not really doing what it's, you're not getting the benefit and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing in the practice. Okay. So in terms beautiful. of the doshas, yeah. Yeah, so this is um, something that I have I have to do a lot of unlearning for people around. Uh, people use the doshas like a horoscope. Oh, I find and, this too. Yeah, and that can be really helpful. It's helpful to know your innate tendencies uh, in terms of your prakriti, the constitution that you're born with and the constitution that you kind of are when you're most in balance because that can help you to recognise, yeah, your tendencies to relating and to responses and things like that. 
but you know dosha translates to fault or that which is changing and we don't want to associate ourselves with a fault and we probably don't want to associate ourselves too much with something that's completely fluid and constantly in flux that would be very confusing um and it's even the idea of like talking about how vata you are or i'm so vata or this like when we know about what these bodily humors these external energies that come in and take over the body vessel are about just the phrasing of that kind of sentence is negative and veiling or tamasic heavy you know mm. increasing ignorance but it's a subtle thing that we need to pick up on mm. Because I don't, I see a lot, I feel like the West has really contributed to the fact that we like labels mm. and we like labels so much. So we have to define who we are with a label. Mm. So it's like, I am man and you are woman. Mm. Yeah. Or I am vegan and you are paleo. Yeah. And so we have these labels and we've taken these, this is just my thought process on it. We've taken these beautiful ancient texts mm. and philosophies into this modern Western world, which loves those labels. Mm -hmm. And we've grown up labeling. Like we go to school and it's like, you're fast. You're mm -hmm. like, you're strong. You're dumb. You're like, you're stupid. You know, all of these things based on like your grades that you get or whether you win the running race or not. So we grow up labeling. And so then as adults, when we hear these really great ancient things, we like, oh, well, I have to label myself. So what am I? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So with, with doshas, I see this a lot, um, like in my coaching practice, women are always asking, okay, well, how do I, like, I'm very, very Vada. And so I just need to like, learn how to like, what can I eat for my Vada? And I'm like, mm. oh, this is a really great conversation. Let's have this. I'm like, are you aware that you don't just have a dosha balance for your mind or a dosha balance for your digestive system or a dosha balance for your physical body. There's multiple dosha balances. Mm -hmm. And so it's understanding where your imbalance is and working with that and then balance, like rebalancing over time. Constantly. Constantly. Yeah. Constantly. Like we are always imbalanced. Mm -hmm. And so we're just, the, the goal of life is to live in balance. And like you mentioned, like with sattva is Yoga is to increase harmony and alignment with nature, whether that's your personal nature or the outer nature. So I'm just vibing off your vibe so hard right now. <laughs> so with the doshas, like let's delve into like if a woman or a man right now is listening to this and they're like, but I've always thought that I'm really pitta and I've always been doing things to be all pitta and or I've always been doing the vada things or I'm really kapha because I'm like sluggish and I'm a bit overweight what can we do to support bringing doshas or better understanding that all doshas are important and we need to serve all doshas, which comes back to that original question, like why we shouldn't identify with them. But what are some ways if we are identify, identifying with them that we can unidentify? Totally, totally. Um, I want to just, again, jump in on something that you said that was really important and good mm. just then. And something that I'm dealing with a lot and we need to understand that when people talk about doshas and they get obsessed around what foods, like if you've not embodied the lifestyle and you're not actually doing all of the things, just the food doesn't matter yet. The food's not going to do anything because if you're not actually in a calm state to assimilate the nutrients and experience the qualities of the food, it's literally just going in and out. Like it's not really a thing, but I think we need to be very careful in these circles because certain women are using Ayurveda as a tool for disordered eating. And it's definitely something, you know, it's just another form of orthorexia to be saying, I need to eat this food because I'm this. And it's just, it's obviously all of this stuff, disordered eating is essentially about control, you know, and it's needing to control what goes on our plate, but it's really not getting to the heart of what's happening, you know. So what I just wanted to really that? say that. Yeah, and, you know, if your vata is completely disturbed, you're not going to be digesting your food anyway. So it doesn't matter what you put in there, okay? Mm. Yeah. 
that um, wonderful question about starting to not identify with the doshas and the way that I use this with people. Yeah. I was just going to say before, before we go on there, let's keep talking about this because it's so interesting, the, the world of emotional eating. Yeah. And the, a lot of us can think, oh, well, they're an emotional eater because, one, they eat a lot of food that's not good for them when they're sad or they feel unhappy. And emotional eating is also eating when you're happy. Just for the just side note, it's emotional eating is eating all the time with whatever emotion you feel. But a lot of people are class, like classify that, oh, you have anorexia or you're bulimia or whatever it might be. But to go from that to having restriction eating of like, oh, I'm only going to eat this, this and this and I'm not going to go any further that actually comes into, I guess, cyclical living, which is what I'm really passionate about and drawing that into Ayurveda. And we can maybe touch on that later. But how important is it to understand that whenever you're restricting anything, you technically have a disordered eating? Yeah, yeah. And what does it feel like to live in flow with your food. I know what it feels like, but how can you describe that? Because I know that you work a lot with food and, devo- and food devotion. So let's let's touch on that before we get into the devotion. Yes, totally. <laughs> um, I like to teach a lot of ritual around food. So a lot of devotional, traditional and modern interpretations of having, you know, really devotional practices around your food. And... Uh, one of them is just a really simple food sadhana where you spend a moment before you eat and, you know, you look at the food and you look at the colours and you smell it and you spend a moment in prayer either out loud or internally acknowledging every single step of life that that food had to go through to arrive on your plate and when you do that, when you think about the soil and the bugs and the sun or whatever it is, if you start thinking about the factories and the chemicals and the hair nets, it's a really easy way to uh, redirect what you're eating because naturally you're not really going to want to do that food prayer around something that is unnatural. You know, you want it to be very holistic and natural. So, yeah, that's one of the ways. There's heaps of ways. Um I've, I've actually forgotten your question, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I tend to do that. I'm like, I want to ask five questions at once because this is such a great topic. Um, but the question was more about, you know, women and any gender really that goes from having a restricted form of eating, thinking that they have an eating challenge, that mm. only then creating more restriction. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like okay. Well, I've been emotionally eating on a negative sense, and so I've gained additional weight, or I feel really sluggish in my body, and my digestive system doesn't feels off because I'm not pooing properly. So you know what? I'm just going to do a juice fast for three days. Yeah, yeah. Going from one restriction to another restriction without recognizing that you're restricting. Yeah. So really interesting. So the first thing that I would say is that we need to recognize that at particular points in time, emotional eating might be a tool that is required. It might just, you know, if you're, you know, I've got clients who are going through a lot and they're feeling really bad about their eating because they've they've got high kapha and it's like, actually, you know what, that's a tool right now. It's doing, it's, 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 it's got a purpose and it's filling its purpose and that's okay. We don't want that to become forever, but we need to accept that that can be all right as well. Mm. Uh, And my big thing is just personal research and personal study. So it's, I know that people think this is crazy, but it is Ayurvedic in that every day I note down what I ate, poo, sleep, skin, um, how I feel, mood, you know, and we just over time collect data to start seeing those correlations, armor on the tongue, you know. And so then when you you make that bad food choice, you know, and we say bad as in we just know it's going to make us feel bad, it's going to contribute to not feeling well, uh, we, we have a bit of data there to to back us up next time that it didn't actually, you know, what I was conscious about it and that made me feel terrible uh, and I won't make that decision again. You know? Yeah, it's 
just recognizing and making taking the time to make a note of what your body's sharing with you on that day each mm. day is so important like that's why i encourage cycle tracking and a lot of people think cycle tracking is just tracking the, your menstruation but it's actually so much more it's it involves all of those things because they're the messages that help you understand where you're in balance or out of balance I have to interrupt this episode to let you know that today is sponsored by my five-day Love Your Cycle mini course. This is a self-paced course to teach you the foundations and fundamentals of your menstrual cycle in less than a week. If you are a woman looking to rediscover your cycle, reconnect with your feminine in a new way, understand your cycle signs and what they mean, this is the mini course for you. Receive daily educational class videos and audios, along with action steps, cycle tracking guides, cycle prompts, and the Love Your Cycle 50-page ebook and audiobook. This is your chance to discover the things that you wish you had have been taught about your cycle at school, how to eat, how to move, honoring your emotions, and identifying PMS and cycle science before they arise. It's your turn to join thousands of women from all over the world who have already taken this course to reclaiming and reconnecting with their bodies. And you can do this too for less than a fancy vegan burger in under a week. To learn more, head to wellsome.com forward slash shop. That's W-E-L-L-S-O-M-E dot com forward slash shop. And use the code CYCLELOVE to save 20% off. Let's go on to the question about unidentifying with your doshas. So <laughs> it feels like a thousand minutes ago that this happened. But we, were talk- but we were talking about the importance of unidentifying with your doshas when yeah. you are so attached to them, like, or I, you've been living, let's just say, like I might meet a client and they're like, oh, I've been eating as a Vata for like a year. <laughs> so mm-hmm. how can we detach and unidentify with just being you are just one dosha? And can you explain how we are all doshas? Yeah, yeah. Um, just before that as well, the poor people listening to this is jumping around so much, but I just wanted to add in, you know, this idea of restriction and stuff, real yoga is a lot to do with fasting it's fasting from all of the senses so it does include fasting from food it does include restriction and if you're practicing yoga and you're not fasting speech food um sensory input then you're also not practicing yoga so mm. it's it's controversial people don't like it but it's traditional so um yeah i guess that's why they have um a lot of um silent retreats yeah, so when you know, in different different forms of, of yoga in traditional aspects, there's there are a lot of them present. Yeah, so it's a devotional practice to not speak. I can't remember the name of it now, but we also lose prana when we speak. Mm. So if you're high vata low prana, then you shouldn't speak too much. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. but the way I I teach learning about Ayurveda, especially from the beginning and trying to embody it. And this is what I teach often in retreats uh, and in things like my Radiant Woman course is to actually work with the gunas, mahagunas, rather than the doshas because the doshas are very, very subtle and there's, you know, so many levels of sub-doshas and there's so many levels, levels of tissues that they react with and systems that they react with and it's just... It's just never ending, really, the intricacies that can happen. It's not a, when you start to look at doshic reactions in a way that is prescriptive and assumptive, you get into quite serious, dangerous territory. Mm. So you need to know all of the intricacies. And if you don't know the intricacies, don't go there. Just work with the gunas. So the gunas, the sattva, rajas and tamas, you know, these three threads that, you know, create the, weave the cloth of everything. And sattva's harmony, being in alignment with nature. Uh, rajas is movement and creation and uh uh, sometimes anxiety and then tamas is ignorance and veiling and inertia and not moving so we start to go does that food increase a feeling of sattva rajas or tamas you know a cup of coffee is going to give you more rajas a potato cake is going to give you tamas mm-hmm. um, maybe a mango will give you sattva you know so that's how i teach it it's a i 
it's very similar to how I teach it too. So I love that. It's so much easier to understand and so much easier to assess and look at. It's the same as like having that devotional practice with food where you're connecting with like all the elements of where that food came from. And mm-hmm. I think one of the yogic practices I love is growing your own food. Yeah. You know, it teaches you so like, especially if you've ever grown blueberries, you do not take a handful of those and shove that handful in your mouth. Uh-uh. You're like, I grew that baby. I'm going to eat every little inch of every little, you know, blueberry. And so I think for me, um, that's definitely a yogic way of living. Yeah. But it teaches you so much more about your food. And then there's the opposite side where there's some people who don't even prepare their own food. And so yeah. they're missing all of this aspect of um like food connection and understanding it all. But next question was how are we all doshas? Mm. Um, so they're constantly, I guess the, the easiest way that I describe this is a three-pronged seesaw. And if you have, you know, you've, you're sitting in the middle and on each the end of each prong is a dosha and you're just constantly going up and down through all of them. So throughout the day, depending on the conversations that you have, depending on the lighting, depending on what you ate, depending on the emails, it's all going to be changing constantly. Mm. And it's just, and when you learn about these things properly, you can sense when you're a little bit more one or the other or something's going to make you feel more pitogenic or more vitogenic. But uh, you also know that maybe you're mostly a a few, you know, a couple of them. I think too, for us in the West, when we start to learn about the doshas, if you're new on this journey or you've just recently explored it in the last couple of years and you're like, you're like, oh, but I'm mostly this kind of dosha, but I'm a little bit of that and a little bit of that, you know that you're kind of a little bit of all of them. Yes. Yeah. And so that's a great identifier that you are all, not just singular. It's like yeah. we are all things. We are uh, the sky above, the ground below and the nature around us. We're not just the sky. We're not just the ground. Um, I could talk about that forever. So let's switch gears after learning a little bit about the doshas and how we are all doshas. How, let's talk about the menstrual cycle in Ayurveda. What's your perspective on the menstrual cycle and the importance of understanding that in Ayurveda? Mm. So uh, there's so many things that contribute to the menstrual cycle uh, in terms of Ayurvedic living and the first one that I love is worshipping the nityas. And the nityas are the notches of the moon between new and full. And so it's only half of your menstrual cycle. But these relate each day to that um, the peak, you know, coming from the shedded womb to ovulation. And embodying and devotional practice to the nityas can be such a beautiful way to start learning about your cycle as well. Mm. Uh, We generally teach, I teach female body centered yoga. So our yoga practice changes according to our phase in our cycle, as does our, you know, you should always have a meditation practice, which is steady and constant and is the same thing for a year or two, but we can do different kind of practices, yoga nidra, things like that, according to where we're at in our cycle. I've got an online course all around that called Yoni Yoga. And uh, the way that we eat does change. And this, I've probably incorporated a little bit more modern science into my Ayurvedic knowledge around like metabolism and things like that throughout your cycle. And we don't we try not to keeps coming back to food but we try not to eat too much or anything unusual when we're bleeding we either try to fast or have milk rice because it's just the body's undertaking a detoxifying process when we menstruate so we just want to allow that to all the energy in the body to get that to happen rather than getting the body to use energy to digest different foods or for instance you know your abhyanga your detoxification with oil massage we don't want to do that we don't actually cook or do any ritual practice uh really any yoga you can meditate when you're on your period but otherwise we don't really do anything um and that's because of the the 
heavy quality of the energy that you embody when you're menstruating is seen as disturbing to the energies of the ritual practice. And that's consistent across most Indigenous cultures of the world. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah. And it's really, especially the menstrual phase is really a time to recuperate and spend time in solitude, be on your own and evaluate and, you know, reflect. And if you do that, you know, I know some more modern teachers are really against this because it kind of, they presume that it's saying that you're less able when you're bleeding. And that's actually not what the tradition presumes. The tradition presumes that that moment before menstruation, you know, just before you menstruate is when you most embody your city your female power and that female power is intuition and insight and we know that the hormonal brain chemistry around that time there's a lot less hormones happening in the brain so you actually have more access to your intuition a little bit less conditioning and more able to pick up on the truth of things you know Mm. so you're considered very powerful at that time and if you can just rest then you you will access more energy in the other phases in the following month. I think that is one of the most challenging things for women is to embody resting and turning inward. And I definitely see that it's generally the the challenge that most women face the most. Up like, how do I do that? Like, I live in a world where it's go go go. I can't possibly rest. You want me to not go to the gym? I'll get a fat ass. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like well, actually, and so I love that. Um, So that's a really good overview of the Ayurvedic um, philosophy around menstruation and menstruating. What about ovulation? Mm, So ovulation is seen as like a peak time. It's just started raining really loudly here. Uh, It's seen as when you're most full of ojas. So, you know, you'll be quite radiant and quite open and quite sociable and it's the time when you would do those peak activities, you know, like you would do the hard yoga class or you would, you know, go for a run or whatever it is. And it's, I see it as a time that is like, obviously very, there's a lot of creative energy that you can tap into with anything, not just baby making. But I also see it as a little bit of a veiling time because you're flooded with hormones and you probably have a bit of rose-tinted glasses on. Mm, I love that term. Definitely flooded with hormones. And it's easy to become disconnected a little bit at that stage too because you're so, your energy, there's so much ojas, you're like pouring it out there to everybody else. It's kind of like very... I guess it would be a yogic philosophy and lifestyle to really be able to notice how strong your energy is at that time and be able to actually draw that back inwards mm-hmm. as opposed to like shedding it outwards. You know, that comes back to the, to the um, niyamas, you know, like being able to like yeah. understand how to conserve and not steal and preserve. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so beautiful. And so what about with the menstrual cycle when it comes to contraception with Ayurveda? As in, should you have sex on the menstrual cycle? Well, as in, like today, there's a lot of discussions around contraception. So not necessarily just conceiving, but contraception. And then I guess we can talk about sexual practices in your menstrual cycle, because I know there's fasting for that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So contraception in general. Ayurveda doesn't really believe in contraception. (laughs) Ayurveda believes in having lots of babies and like that's your dharma as a woman is, you know, your dharma is to do lots of things, but your dharma part of it is to procreate. That's the point of being human most of the time. So I haven't really, I mean, the only Ayurvedic contraception that I've actually studied is using neem you know, douching with neem Mm. and it's incredible acidic and it's probably going to give you thrush and it's not something that anyone should do. Uh, I'm sure there's other practices. I know there would be herbal forms of uh, like 
not abortion, but like pre-abortion, like stopping uh, the egg from attaching into the lining of the womb with certain herbs. But that's kind of all I know about in terms of contraception. It wasn't a trick question. Yeah, yeah. I generally point people towards the, you know, fertility awareness method. Yeah, I love that. And the reason why I asked is, you know, contraceptive methods that have been um, external, so synthetic and hormonal and devices, haven't been around for a very long time in the grand scheme of life. And the reason why I asked that is it would be of yogic philosophy and lifestyle to live in accordance with your body and in tune with your body. And I guess fertility awareness educates and teaches that, that knowing when you're ovulating, therefore when you're going to menstruate, what your fertile window looks like so that you can understand your body so well. Just like you mentioned about documenting down the armour on your tongue, understanding your poo, knowing what you eat for the day, how much water you're drinking, you know, are you moving your body, what's your sleep like? All of that is yogic, as is understanding your own, like, ability to conceive and then having not control over it but having choice over it is really important um so it wasn't a trick question i just wanted you to be be like so they actually don't recommend taking any contraception um yeah yeah you know because you know if you're going to yoga for the um acrobatics of it you could say Mm. and you're not meditating you don't have this spiritual practice the deeper you get into all of those things, the more co- the thought of contraception is like, I'm actually just putting more armor in my body. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ayurveda does say to never take any herb or medicine, maybe partrifala for longer than three months at a time. Mm. So Because it starts to become Great part point. of your cellular structure, you know. But interestingly, the hormonal contraceptive pill, like the original pill, the active ingredient comes from Australian Indigenous herbal wisdom. So it was a tree and it was used as a tea by women in the Australian outback and German scientists came and found the active compound. And obviously, so there, and I sh- I'm sure that happened in Ayurveda as well. There would be a herb for that. Uh, but the problem, so these things have existed for a long time. They have been used for a long time, but the problem is when we separate them from their natural structure and we just yeah. take out the active ingredient, you know, which is what we've done with hormonal contraception. And, we, you know, it was never meant to be used every day either. It was just meant to be used when it was really needed. Mm. Kind of like more of a, like a morning after pill. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good example. It's When you think about going from, quite often like because I used to work as a food science formulator you know yeah. so I did that in nutri- nutritional manufacturing for seven years in a, in a lab where you know we made raw and live food products so they were all very very healthy but yeah. still you're still going through the processing of it and yeah. a lot of people when I first started coaching I was very much all about food and educating on food and nutrition and the question will be like what are the good sugars like you know I can use stevia right and my I always just teach, honey, like, just come back to nature. Just eat as close to nature as possible. Like, that keeps it quite simple. But, like, stevia is from nature. I'm like, it's white and technically it's green on a plant. Mm. So you buy it and it's white and, yes, it is vegan and, yes, it is natural because they can label it like that. But technically this is an example of, like, taking the plant from, like, the Indigenous communities and the philosophy of the indigenous in using it and then making it into like a tablet form that's sold as a pharmaceutical that's i'm just taking a small example and showing you how that happens on a food scale yeah totally so coming back to nature is so important um so so important i would love to question and quiz you all about that contraceptive knowledge around the indigenous communities i love that um maybe i have to check, like save it for another episode but the question around safe sex practices because I know that um, from my understanding in Ayurveda, you know, your sexual energy is your empowering energy and, you know, that's additional prana and life force. And I know that in many different Indigenous communities around the world, they often say that for men ejaculating and, you know, they would withdraw that so that you're preserving your life energy. But let's talk about that in terms for women. 
you know, what's yeah. your, your life, um, life force energy like throughout your cycle? And then let's talk about how that works into safe sex practices. Mm, mm. So uh, firstly, I'd say that from the traditional perspective, it's the opposite for women. So when they orgasm, they actually create Shakti and they hold it in the body. And that's, there's a couple of reasons for that. And first one would be that the vagina is at the bottom of the central channel, which is considered this main, you know, kind of like this around the spine, this main channel of energy so that we can uh, build within it, whereas men don't have that. You know, it's a separate appendage to the central channel. So that's often why men have to observe brahmacharya, moderation with sex, and women actually don't need to. And uh, orgasm is considered able to create quite a lot of shakti. More self-pleasure, ladies. Yes, yeah. Uh, but masturbation is rajasic and it's going to increase vata. Mm. So we need to be with that as well so it's you know there's so many intricacies and it's very traditional and therefore a bit controversial when we talk about sex with Ayurveda because it's like well don't do this position don't do that at this time according to the moon especially uh, and according to sex practices in your menstrual cycle it would just be that you don't you absolutely don't have sex when you're bleeding like that's the opposite of the energy that is meant to be occurring it's meant to be a downward not a not an any kind of upward motion um and it i know that it can be helpful for like cramps and things like that but it's the opposite that we want the opposite type quality that we want to be producing at that time and in terms of prana throughout your cycle yeah it would be that you you know when you're menstruating you have a less ojas and tejas and prana and then it builds towards ovulation and then again it becomes quite low in your you know luteal phase and before you menstruate and i think there's an interesting correlation with you know ojas being this plumpness and radiance of the skin and when you're just about to bleed you really lose a lot of I don't know if you lose collagen, but you lose moisture retention in the skin and, you you know, you become more wrinkly and you see your kind of perimenopausal skin and menopausal look. Uh, and that's a, a direct correlation between what Ayurveda says in terms of having an urge depletion at that point in your cycle. Mm, mm. And you definitely notice it too, like it comes through in your habits. Yeah. Yeah, and your your intention for the day and how you treat yourself it's very like that's where a lot of women find that the most challenging phase of their cycle pre-bleed that pre-menstrual post-ovulation time because it's like oh this stuff's changing and it's like feels like it's going down to ground zero but I want my life to go down to ground zero it's like oh it's just it's just that reproductive system mm. um honey this has been such a great chat um I'd love to ask you the question like what are three simple things like if someone's listening to this and they're like, I would love to adapt an Ayurvedic approach to my menstrual cycle mm -hmm. with yogic philosophy, what are three things they could do if they've never done this ever that they could do to get started on that journey? Yeah. First thing always is a daily meditation practice. 20 minutes, five minutes, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever you can do, something has to happen that has to be the foundational foundation of absolutely any other practice uh, the other thing I would say would be to start planning your life so that you're not social just before you menstruate or when you're menstruating and you know maybe you can rearrange some work meetings and things like that as well uh, and I would say just research just you know, for three months, track your cycle, track how you feel, track what you're, you know, drawn to, what you want to eat, the kind of conversations that you're having and do your own data collection. Oh, I love that. They're such great three tips because you're, it's so true. If you can't sit with yourself in yeah. meditation and I'm just going to throw a point in there about meditation mm -hmm. is that the point of meditation is to come to enlightenment, is to go from oneness to wholeness and if is that right would you agree depends what kind and what philosophy true true yeah. that's true 
But I'm just going to say, like, to backtrack is that if you're meditating and you're doing so with a lot of distraction in the sense that distraction in your mind because you're listening to an audio and then you've got music playing and then your mind's thinking too, mm-hmm. that's not actually meditating. Mm-hmm. So I just, I just want, I, I feel like a lot of people get, oh, but I have a spiritual practice with my meditation, but they're doing a lot of cloudiness in their practice. Yeah. The reason why I brought it up is that let's just focus on one thing and mm. bring yourself to like some one pointedness and just hone in on yourself. And maybe that's just your breathing. I love like breathing and the counting of like pranayama mm. is a really great felt like way to start, I feel. But if you're getting really, really confused and you're like, but that's why I can't meditate, get some guidance with meditating. Mm, mm, totally. And um you know, these, there's a couple of elements there when we're relying on like guided stuff or music or whatever, we're continuing in our daily ritual practice to instill low self-worth because we're saying, I can't even get, I can't even meditate. I have to put this thing on, you know, um, and most of those, so anything that is sensorial, that is the senses experiencing something outside of the self is going to increase rajas and probably vata, you know. Mm. And the my, like, there's lots of different meditations and my view is that meditation is sitting with a mantra that is for you uh, and especially in those first few years, having a noisy mind is the practice and the, you know, that noisy mind is stress leaving the body. And that's actually what it is. Like we're not in a monastic way of being. So we shouldn't be trying to approach our meditation practice as a monastic way of quieting the mind. That's not actually, you know, my teacher says you can't, you can't think or stop a thought. You can't chirp a bird, you know, they're naturally occurring phenomenons and then you, of course, have other awareness practices, which I would see more as a spiritual practice rather than a meditation practice because meditation should be like brushing your teeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hell yeah, sister. <laughs> I Just a point on meditating is ever since I committed to a spiritual meditation practice, you know, and it slightly changes in the morning, the time frame. It's either 4.30 or it's 4.45 or it's 5 o'clock and I always do minimum 30 minutes. I used to think 30 fucking minutes to meditate. That's way too long. I can't sit there for 30 minutes. Now I sit and I'm like, I could probably go for another 30. <laughs> you know, you just get to that. Yeah. Oh, it's it's really beautiful. Definitely. Yeah. And just know it is possible. Yes. Um, honey, I've loved this chat today. I have a one final podcast question I ask all of our guests, but before we go there, how can our listeners learn about you and learn about what you offer because I'm sure there's going to be some listeners who are like, holy moly, I want to delve deeper into this and I want to know what all these Sanskrit names mean and how can I have this philosophy and live this way? Um, so how can they find you? Yeah, so it's seed, so like a plant seed of self at Instagram and seedofself.com. And I do have a Facebook group, but it's probably hard to find, so you probably need to go through the other avenues first. And I... I do do sessions and things like that, but my main kind of two things that I'm offering at the moment are mentorship, uh, which is eight weeks to a year, and also our online spiritual community that we call the Kula, which means just community, spiritual Sangha. And these are two beautiful avenues to begin work. I do have online courses, which are kind of easier to access. And just if you want to just do some self-led learning on Ayurveda and embodying this kind of ideas. Beautiful. I've loved our chat so much. Thank you. Um, I'm going to pop all those links in the show notes so everyone can find you very easily. Um, But final podcast question, I love this question, is... I want you to think back to your first menarche, so your first period, and what are three guiding tips that you would give to your younger menstruating self that you wish you knew then that you now know today? Mm, um, It would be like, I I don't think I would give tips to myself, but more so that like my, the conversations that my parents tried to have with me were incredible like totally convoluted totally confusing 
nonsensical, completely nonsensical. And even at like age seven, I was like, you're not making any sense. Like this isn't, this isn't, this isn't obvious what you're talking about. So just maybe learning a little bit or asking a bit more from parents when they try to have those awkward conversations because they really struggle sometimes. Uh, I wouldn't listen to my big sister because she was a real, she is a real cynic and she always looks on the negative side of things and she really gave me a negative approach to my period for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I guess just to accept that your body is going to do what it needs to do at different times and it might be a different time or look a different way to other people and that's okay. I love that. Yeah. I really love that. It's um, especially the tip about the communication from those around you, um, mm-hmm. like you could call them your elders, you know, the ones that are leading and guiding you. Mm-hmm. I work a lot with parents and in schools and it's they only can teach you how they were taught. Yeah. Yeah. And it, so it's not for a lot of young girls that I meet in schools. They're like, oh, I wish my mom could do this. And I'm like, well, actually, let's look at it from your mom's perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, your mom only knows what she knows. Maybe she would love to know how to teach you in a different way, but this is all she knows. Yeah. I was like, there's no manual. There's no, te- there's no parent teaching guidebook. <laughs> they're mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah. And so that's such a great point. Um, empowering parents to be able to better support you know their youth and that's definitely something that I'm working on on the back end so honey thank you so much for joining us for this episode I'm sure everybody has loved it as much as I have I'm just like hardcore girl frothing and um all your links will be in the show notes so everyone can come and find you and I just want to say thank you so much for being present and and sharing your beautiful wisdom with us today Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah, it's been lovely to talk with someone who's got a bit more knowledge about this stuff. And we always say, Jai Guru Dev. It's not my wisdom. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to every episode of the Well Women podcast. I trust you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. If you got a lot out of it too, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes or your podcast app. This means together we can inspire, connect and educate even more women. Now, is there a bestie, a sister, or a friend who you know may be frustrated and confused with their health? Are they ready to discover new aspects of themselves too? Well, take a screenshot of this podcast episode, share it on your social media, email it, text it, or any way you need to get it to their ears. So together, we can all live in flow, harmony, and balance with our bodies. And be sure to tag me in it too. Hashtag WellWomenPodcast. For everything we mentioned in today's episode, you can find this in the show notes over at wellsome.com forward slash podcast. Until next time, beautiful, get connected, listen to your body and remember, body confidence all begins with living in tune with your menstrual cycle.